You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can improve my content for you, the listener, shoot me a message on Twitter, at Ellis A. Tucci. I would love to hear from you. To catch up on all my past episodes and hear new ones every week, subscribe to the show on Spotify, follow it on Apple Podcasts, or visit hiddenhistory.show. If you enjoy what I do, I'd love it if you left a review and shared the show with your friends. And now, on to the episode. This week, I'm going to talk about the history of the Pledge of Allegiance. More specifically, how a calculated political decision in 1954 came to turn the pledge into what it is today. This is Hidden History. And you're listening to episode 56, Under God. So I might as well just start off by telling you that I think the idea of the Pledge of Allegiance doesn't really sit well with me. It strikes me, you know, just as a little bit propagandistic and kind of, you know, indoctrination to have school children mindlessly recite the pledge and, you know, swear their undying fealty to a symbol. And so in order to talk about the context that led to the addition of Under God to the pledge, I also need to talk about what the Pledge of Allegiance represents, who is included in Liberty and Justice for All. Does the recitation of the pledge reinforce fetishistic ideas about American exceptionalism? And most importantly, what does it mean to be patriotic? So let's get right into it. The text that we now know to be the pledge was first written in 1892 by a Baptist minister named Francis Bellamy. The original wording read as follows. I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all." Now, Bellamy was a socialist, and he rationalized his writing of the pledge, saying that by training children to have allegiance to the state, it would usher in an era of bottom-up utopian socialist reform. That's, you know, well, that's not what happened. So the pledge went live, if you will, on Columbus Day in 1892. The symbolism was intentional. Just days later, on October 21st, the city of Chicago would dedicate the site of the World's Columbian Exposition, better known as the 1893 World's Fair, the purpose of which was to commemorate the 400-year anniversary of Columbus's landing in the Americas. Reflecting back on that period, Bellamy would go on to say that, quote, at the beginning of the 90s, 1890s that is, patriotism and national feeling was at a low ebb. The patriotic ardor of the Civil War was an old story. The time was ripe for a reawakening of simple Americanism, and the leaders in the new movement rightly felt that patriotic education should begin in the public schools. And so, from that fateful Columbus Day onward, variations of a patriotic pledge were recited daily in public schools across America. From then on, it's basically business as usual until 1923, when Bellamy's pledge is standardized at the National Flag Conference, which 
was something I only recently learned existed. Before that point, there was another competing pledge written by George Balch that was somewhat interchangeable. It went a little bit like this. We give our heads and hearts to God and our country. One country, one language, one flag. At the 1923 National Flag Conference, people rightly decided that Balch's pledge sounded pretty goddamn stupid, and so they stopped using it. The next schismatic chapter in this week's saga comes in 1954. So let's get down to talking about the Eisenhower administration's push to absolutely fucking destroy the USSR with the addition of just two little words to the pledge. That means we, and by that I mean my disembodied voice, has got to say some words about the social climate of the Cold War. Suffice it to say that the Cold War years were conservative. I'm not going to go super in-depth about it because I've already talked about aspects of Cold War culture in episodes 1, 51, 33, 34, and 18. So just, you're going to have to trust me when I say that social and political conservatism ruled the day in the 1950s. Okay, I am going to go a little bit in-depth with it because I really want to talk about American cultural policy and the nature of a cultural export in the context of the Cold War. Okay, this bit might seem like it's completely unrelated to the Pledge of Allegiance, but I promise there is a relationship here. Just bear with me. Let's get into some theory. In Edward Hall's groundbreaking, if somewhat dense book, Beyond Culture, he views culture as the sum of what he refers to as extensions, which are things like clothing, phones, or multimedia, which do things for us that we are incapable of doing without that extension. For example, people can fly with the help of an aircraft. Without that plane, or helicopter, or zeppelin, we're not getting our feet off the ground for very long. And so, as a result of that relationship, that aircraft is a human extension. When a number of extensions function in concert with one another, that's what's called an extension system. Here's what Hall has to say about it. It is characteristic of all extension systems to be treated as distinct and separate from the user and to take on an identity of their own. Religions, philosophies, literature, and art illustrate this. After a time, the extended system accretes to itself a past and a history, as well as a body of knowledge and skills that can be learned. Such systems can be studied and appreciated as entities in themselves. But Ellis, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with the pledge? Well, hold on, just a second. I told you I have a plan, and I'm getting there. <clears throat> so when an aspect of culture can exist in an isolatable entity, it means that there is opportunity for it to be wielded on behalf of another purpose. Essentially, and this is my argument, not Hall's, the compartmentalization of culture allows for the weaponization of culture. It allows for the domination of the cultural export. 
If cultural aspects can be isolated as a closed or semi-closed system, then that system is interchangeable. It can be removed in a whole or in part from its originator and supplanted by the exporter. So now, the moment you all know has been coming, it's time to talk about the 1959 American National Exhibition in Moscow. I know, you could really see that one coming from a mile away. The American National Exhibition is most well known for being the place where Nikita Khrushchev and Richard Nixon had what's called the Kitchen Debates, which was this little proxy conversation that represented the massive raging ideological war between communism or capitalism and something like that. Anyway, it's not really important. I really have no desire to talk about the Kitchen Debates. The reason that I'm talking about the 1959 American National Exhibition is because it's an example of attempting to win the Cold War through drawing cultural contrasts between the United States and the USSR. Essentially, it's an attempt by the United States to show Soviet citizens that their way of life absolutely sucks. And the reason that this is important is because everything at the 1959 American National Exhibition is based on lies. The exhibits were supposed to grant a glimpse into the life of the average American citizen, but it couldn't have been further from the truth. American politicians were outraged when they were told that black people would be depicted as on the same social standing as whites. A fashion show planned for the exhibition was axed completely when segregationists found out that it would depict a white audience attending a black wedding. According to the American National Exhibition, the United States did not have a race problem. The model house where the kitchen debates took place was spun to the Soviet citizens as being within the reach of every American. So not only was this a completely fanciful claim from an economic perspective, Nixon claimed that the luxurious house could be bought for a measly $14,000, but it was also completely unbound from reality in another way. This house, which supposedly represented what the average American lived like, was full of technology that hadn't been invented yet. Ovens that could bake a cake in three minutes, robots that whirred around and cleaned the floors, dishwashers that put the clean plates right on the dining room table, moving refrigerators, video phones, meals at the push of a button, all within the reach of the average American. In reality, all controlled by a system of one-way mirrors, wires, and human beings. In reality, all a lie. So what does this say about the culture and climate of the Cold War United States? It says that progress is performative, that making the lives of Americans better does not matter when we can make the enemy think that the lives of Americans are better. Sure, I mean, this is really apparent from the fact that the US government openly lied about the material conditions of the average American but it's even more glaringly apparent in the government's depiction of race relations. They knew that American treatment of non-white citizens was sickening and disgraceful. They knew, and instead of making any attempt at meaningful progress towards racial justice, they ignored it. 
In attempting to win the Cold War by conning Soviet citizens on the flawlessness of the American system, the government says, what, us? How could we have a race problem? Why, we're the United States, where each man is accorded the opportunity to thrive based on his own self-determination. Capitalism is the most just and equal system the Earth has ever known. How could we have a race problem? Very related segue, if you want to know exactly how that could happen, listen to last episode. So, to summarize, the culture of the Cold War is a culture of deception. It's the posturing of strength through the presentation of, of falsely unified fronts and through the creation of false contrasts. And now, it is time to talk about the Pledge of Allegiance. The push to include under God in the pledge largely began in the late 1940s under the leadership of a few regional religious figures who it would be fruitless for me to list here. It really picks up steam in 1951, when the Knights of Columbus, which is the world's largest Catholic fraternal organization, outside of, I suppose, the Catholic Church, started including it in all of their pledge recitations. So these guys are doing it for obvious reasons. I mean, I feel like if you're a member of a patriotic, and I hope you could hear my air quotes there, religious organization, you know, maybe a theocracy is more of your thing. But the campaign to add it to the pledge doesn't stop there, which, you know, kind of obvious, because it did end up being added. Anyway, the revision of the Pledge of Allegiance becomes popular among a broader swath of Americans because crippling Cold War anxiety has filled them with the insatiable need to set the United States apart from the Soviet Union. Now, the official religion of the Eastern Bloc countries was state atheism. So, of course, the easiest way to make people know that you're different from the Soviet Union besides, you know, starting a four-decade-long ideological war with them, is to add some religion to your patriotism. So I think if we look at it through this lens, the fact that the Pledge of Allegiance has a reference to God becomes less of a reference to the deeply held religious convictions of the Founders, which are actually largely overinflated, by the way. A number of the Founding Fathers were deists, which means that they believed that God essentially created the universe and then went on a milk run that lasted a few billion years. Anyway, it becomes less referential to our fabricated history and more of a cynical ploy to set ourselves apart in a religion competition nobody else knew existed. So now we've finished out the part about the pledge, which, to be honest, is not the main subject of this episode. To be, you know, on the level with you, I don't care if the pledge says under God or not. I care about what caused it to get there in the first place. So now it's time to talk about the nature of patriotism. Yeah, we're gonna have that conversation. Longtime listener, first time caller Audrey Lord was once quoted as asking, what does it mean to be a citizen of a country on the wrong side of every liberation struggle on this earth? I saw that quote from her 1986 keynote address, Sisterhood and Survival, a number of months ago, and it's been kind of occupying this space in my head to the point where I decided 
that I just wanted to do this episode pretty much specifically to address it in a roundabout way. Here it is, the theme. In her dress, Lord follows the quote with this. Let that sink in for a moment. We cannot join the children in knee pants and jumpers throwing stones at army hippos in Cape Town, but we can refuse to support companies that do business in South Africa, and we can persuade others to refuse to support companies that do business in South Africa. Even closer to home, what are we saying to our sons and nephews and students as they are herded into the U.S. Army by unemployment and despair? to become meat in battles to occupy the lands of other people of color. That's just a fraction of the whole writing, and I really do recommend that you go and read the whole thing for yourself. So, what does it mean to be on the wrong side of the freedom struggle? I'll give you a spoiler, this episode doesn't have an answer for that one. But since we're on the topic of Americanism, I do want to broach one subject that's pretty topical to current events. What does it mean to support the troops? Our post 9-11 society has been plagued by endless, mindless war. It has brought about the deaths of thousands of American servicemen and hundreds of thousands of foreign civilians. You want more on that? Listen to episode 47. Throughout the Forever War, we're constantly inundated with calls to support the troops. It's used as a stopgap to shut down any conversation critical of American military action. Why, you might not agree with what the president is doing, the line might go, but you've still got to support the troops. And so it's in this way that like the Pledge of Allegiance, calls to support the troops become a ritual in which the American people are expected to participate. I mean, I'm no super genius here, but wouldn't the best way to support the troops be to not send them to die? What does it mean to divorce support for the American military from support for the military policies of the American government? What does it mean for a member of an oppressed group to recite those words with liberty and justice for all, knowing damn well that they aren't true? What, if anything, do we owe a government that shows us every day that its allegiances lie not with the many, but with the few? What does it mean to be a citizen of a country that stands upon the wrong side of every liberation struggle on this earth? Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.